Jeremiah, or Yirmiyahu, as we know him in Hebrew, <laughs> it's a very, very different book from Isaiah. Although some of the themes are similar because Jeremiah does sit within the great prophetic revolution of Israel that happened in that period here that we talked about, and I'm just going to draw the line on the board. And if you recall from last week, I, I called this minus 750, and I called this minus 550, and I called this minus 650, because all of the great, uh, all of these three major prophets of Isaiah, Jeremiah, and Ezekiel, the big daddy prophets, are all sitting within this framework of a couple of centuries. And as I've said before, and bear in mind, well, obviously we don't have time to go into this right now, but in, just in world historical terms, all of this period is prior to the great religious upheavals that happened in the world in the 6th and 5th centuries that are following, whether we're talking about the Buddha or Zoroaster or Socrates, Plato, all of these different thought revolutions happened after this period and after the eventual cataclysm of the exile. Whereas Isaiah is a book that we can read, and I went on at length last week about what a sublime text it is, and where we can read Isaiah, we can go, wow, that was, uh, that was an amazing piece of literature. I'm glad I read that. I'm glad I took the effort to understand that. I'm glad I got into its poetry, its themes, its lofty, sublime message. It's not it, We can close the book, and then we can go to, uh, to uh, you see, I'm in Irvine, I'm in Orange County, so, so go what? Barnes & Noble. Exactly. We can go, well, I wasn't thinking about Barnes & Noble, but I was thinking even something more mundane. We can just go about our life shopping and doing what we do and say, well, you know. But Jeremiah is a book that is very, very difficult to read properly without it affecting us without it affecting our life, because Jeremiah is much more gritty. It's not all lofty messages. It's much, much more embedded in the external and political reality, the real thing that is going on around Jeremiah and what he is reacting to. And it is a text that really opens up for us more than any other prophet what it is actually like to be a Navi. It is about the career of a prophet and all of the ups and downs and mostly downs that that involves. And when I say mostly downs, it's because unlike Isaiah, Jeremiah was not living at a time of great salvation. That salvation that happened that we spoke of last week, here's the year 700, and this entire period here under the reign of King Hezekiah, of King Hezekiahu, whichever way you cut it, I'm sorry, Grendel, maybe I've played with this, is it, we're still okay? Whichever way you cut it, whether you want to come at it from a secular historian perspective to say, I'm not going to take divine intervention into account when I look at these things, or you want to come at it from a more cosmic, theological perspective, whichever way you look at it, there was a tremendous salvation, a miraculous salvation of the Jewish people in minus 700, in 700 BC when we look at the unstoppable expansion of the Neo-Assyrian Empire and the entire Mediterranean and Eastern Mediterranean is a sea of Assyrian expansion and control, except for this one little dot in the middle, which is the state of Yehuda, the state of Judah, with Jerusalem as its capital. And Jerusalem, we also looked at under Hezekiah, Jerusalem itself expanded with the destruction of the northern kingdom that had happened in the time, early years of Hezekiah's reign, the destruction of the northern kingdom, Jerusalem took many, many people as refuge. Its population swelled. They created what we now more or less know as the shape of the old city. 
and it was a huge transitional point for us because from here onwards, we are no longer the greater Israel, we are the Jewish people. We saw the rise of prophets in the northern kingdom before its destruction, Hosea, Amos, and we saw the rise in the southern kingdom of great spiritual figures, Isaiah, who we spoke about last week, and the prophet Micha. By the way, the prophet Micha, for those who find Isaiah a little bit overwhelming in 66 chapters, the prophet Micha is like a shortened version of Isaiah. It's like Isaiah in seven chapters on turbo, on crack. It's like all condensed and powered with very similar themes. But what happened after Hezekiahu, and remember at the end of Hezekiahu's reign, uh, apart from his illness from which he recovered, and then uh, he had visitations from various foreign dignitaries, one of whom was from a country called Babylon. And uh, Isaiah had warned Hezekiahu at the end not to uh, overexpose himself to Babylon because eventually they will be the next power that will have to be reckoned with. But we're not there yet. The real historical circumstances that set the groundwork for the rise of this phenomenal prophet Jeremiah happens in the following century. And it's very, very complex. So it's worth me just taking a little bit slowly the stages, even at the expense of perhaps discussing some of the themes of Jeremiah itself in depth, because they will become evident to you when you read the text after you understand the historical circumstances. When Hezekiah died, he was succeeded by his son, and his son ruled for the longest period of any king of Judah. His son, Hezekiah's son, was... Good, 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 good. Good, good, good. Sometimes it seems like I'm patronizing the audience or being cruel when I ask questions like that, but sometimes I also like the fact that there's this collective pressure going down on the audience that says, you know what, I'm sitting here and I don't actually know the answer and I should really read these things. It's a very famous king. No, 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 not yet. It's a very, this, this century in, the, in Jewish history is dominated by the figure of Hezekiahu's son, a king called Menashe. Many, many, not just scholars, but the rabbis themselves go into great contortions to try and understand how it was that Hezekiah, who was a phenomenally righteous king, a phenomenally loved king, and someone in whose lifetime had overseen a huge reformation in Israel, and about whom Jewish history speaks very, very highly, probably the most righteous and greatest king that Judah had had since King David himself, how it is that that person has a son who is so abominably vile and wicked. We're told that during his reign, Menashe fills Jerusalem with blood. What that means is, is that he brooked no descent. We have a whole collection of prophets around here, and we have a whole collection of prophets around here, but we have no prophets in this entire period, except one. Except one. It's not Jeremiah. I'll tell you in a second. Because what is happening during the reign of Menashe is that after Hezekiahu, due to the various geopolitical realities that we won't go into just now, Menashe is for most of that time frame a vassal to Assyria. Syria is the big power all around. It would almost be like if you can imagine, uh, if you can imagine the United States and one tiny little state in it, in the in the middle of it, uh, and that's independent. But everything around is an entirely different political entity. So ultimately, he is a vassal to Assyria. And remember that Assyria, which in Hebrew is Ashur. Ashur was the name of the empire. Ashur was the name of the city-state. 
Ashur was the name of the religion. Ashur was the name of the god. There was a huge ideological pressure on the empire and everyone concerned with it. So Menashe was very, very swayed by these ideas and reintroduced into Judah and into Jerusalem the whole syncretic polytheistic cults that had been taking place before Hezkiyahu. But he did it in a much, much grander scale. Now, that's very, very complex. And what is happening here is that, and I wish we had time to go into this. Um, I'm just like trying to pique people's interest. During this time, Syria itself has reached its height. It can't expand anymore. And what happens to empires when they can't expand? They move into a consolidation period. And if we know one thing about empires, it's that when they move into consolidation, it's the beginning of the end. The big, big ruler of this entire period is the enormous ruler of the Assyrian Empire, who's really ruling over the Assyrian Empire at its geographical and political height, is, of course, the famous Ashurbanipal. Very. Why is Ashurbanipal very famous? Why? How do we know all this? How do we know all this? We know all this because Ashurbanipal had his famous a library. Ashurbanipal was unique among kings in the ancient world because he could read. He was never meant to be king. He was going to be, he was a crown prince, but his brother died, so Ashurbanipal came to the throne, and not only could he read, he liked reading, and he amassed this huge library of tens of thousands of tablets of cuneiform descriptions of the Assyrian Empire and everything that was going on. In, of course, all of that material are discussions of the very facts that we are talking about now in Jewish history, the tributes paid by Menashe and the kings of Judah. And that's all very nice, except, and I'll just add this as a footnote for those who are interested in these things, is that, of course, just because Ashurbanipal had a library doesn't mean we know about it, but during the 19th century, as you would know, British archaeologists are crawling all over the Middle East and all over Iraq, and suddenly, kaboom, they find the library of Ashurbanipal, 30,000 cuneiform tablets, which are, of course, today the great source that we know about the Neo-Syrian expansion, and all of that stuff is in the British Library and the British Museum. You can go to London and you can see it, and you can see the obelisks, and you can see the relationship that is happening between these kings. So what we're talking about now are not fairy stories. They are our history. They are where we came from. They are, when we talk about how we are the Jewish people, this is where it happens. This is where it emerges from. It's also important because people get confused. <laughs> Who are the Assyrians? Who are the Babylonians? What is happening? What's their relationship? How does that work? And it's true, it is somewhat confusing. If that's the Middle East, I mean, that's the Mediterranean, and here's the land of Israel. So all of this great big general label that we call enemy that is happening 500 miles to the east in what is today Iraq, really in the ancient world, is a composite of a number of different important principalities and kingdoms, each of whom thinks that it is more superior to the other. And of course, we're not talking about dynasties that are hundreds of years old. We're talking about dynasties that are thousands of years old. We talk about the Assyrians. We're actually talking about the Neo-Assyrians. It was a revival of the Assyrian Empire. And they and the Babylonians, the Assyrians a little bit to the north, their capital was Nineveh. To the south, it's the Babylonians. And eventually, during this time, although under Ashurbanipal, the Assyrians are in control, the Babylonians are constantly pushing against that control. After Ashurbanipal, we have a series of somewhat weaker uh, Assyrian kings, and eventually Babylon breaks free of that. The one surviving prophet that we have from this entire period of Menashe, anyone know, is the prophet Nahum. Nahum is a book of three chapters. He's going on about only one theme. There's only one theme in the book of Nahum. In chapter 1, he talks about the destruction of Assyria. 
In chapter 2, he talks about the destruction of Assyria. And in chapter 3, he talks about the destruction of Assyria. That is the only prophet we have surviving. Menashe brooked no opposition, but we do have extensive records and details of his relations with the Assyrian Empire. Okay, after Ammon dies, and after Menashe dies, there's some massive history there, his son succeeds. And his son was even more vile and more wicked. Uh, and we're not just talking about the introduction of polytheistic cults. We're talking about tremendous injustice, tremendous exploitation of the population, and the setting up of a value system that encouraged people to participate in that injustice and corruption. Moreover, it was almost even worse than it would be if the, uh, well, <laughs> as though when I say even worse, I might save that because that's, really, um, that's really for a later period. But what Amon did, what Amon did was that his project against uh, the traditional spiritual faith system of Israel was so profound that he ordered every single scroll of the Torah to be burnt. And uh, that caused, obviously, <laughs> a tremendous uh, effect on the public and on the general tenure of Israel. But Ammon was so disliked that he was assassinated after two years. Round about 640, so in fact, as you can already see, I've, I've, I'm, a, I'm a little bit out with the... Uh, with, with, with where I put my circles and my dates and things. Because really, we do, on the next figure, who comes to the throne and around, Menashe really is this period here, the first half of that century, a little bit beyond. But in 640, Amon's son is placed on the throne. And remember that placing the Davidic lineage on the throne was a key to the stability of the southern kingdom, whatever stability it had. It's a very, very important political thing. So, but when Amon's son came to the throne at the age of eight, Menashe himself had come to the throne, I think, around the age of 12. <coughs> Amon obviously was a bit older, but Amon's son. And Amon's son... At first, you just thought that he was just this, you know, political appointment, Davidic king. I know what my grandfather was up to. I know what my father was up to. It's about suppressing any possibility of the f people having that sort of relationship with traditional sources. It's about manipulating my relationship with the Assyrians. But at, at his bar mitzvah, and obviously I'm going to tell you what his name is in a moment. At his bar mitzvah, round about the age of 12, 13, he suddenly has an immense epiphany, a realization, a wake-up, and says, wait a minute, I am a Davidic king. What does that mean? What does that mean for me? What does it mean for the Jewish people? What does it mean for the world? There must be something more to this than just simply being in charge of this rabbitous population. And he starts to explore. He has some very good teachers. And they teach him. And they say, look, they, before your father had them all burnt, there was this thing called the Torah. And it talked about the purpose of the Jewish people. And it talked about how you're meant to run a society. And it talked about righteousness and justice. And it talked about ways in which we can live in harmony with the divine and with each other. And he decided that he was going to be a righteous king. This young boy decided, almost naively and idealistically in that context, after 60 years already of complete devastation and corruption of spiritual values, this young boy, whose name of course is Josiah. Now Josiah said, I don't know what's exactly in the Torah, but I do know one thing. I know that God does not like idols, and he doesn't like idol worship. And he doesn't like all the games of power that idols involve. So he went on a huge zealot reformation of the entire country and destroyed every single idol. It shows you 
that already the Assyrian Empire was in some state of breakup and instability because he was even able to go to the, what was formerly the Northern Kingdom and destroy idols there. He destroyed all the Bamot, all of the local places of worship, the, the, especially those that dealt with nature worship. He destroyed the golden calves that have been set up right since the beginning, you know, right since the beginning of the Northern Kingdom. He destroyed all of the statues, all of the idols, all of the altars. He even dug up the bones of priests that had died, priests of idol worship, and burnt those bones. Anything that could possibly be a focus of idol worship, he utterly destroyed. He even appointed inspectors that would go into people's houses and check that they weren't hiding any idols. His reformation was total. But it's worth noting that what we understand about that Reformation and the Reformation of Josiah is a very, very important point in Jewish history that scholars talk about. It's worth being backgrounded on it. But what it would appear from what we understand of the Reformation of Josiah is that it was a top-to-bottom Reformation, not a bottom-to-top. In other words, it wasn't the same Reformation as his great-grandfather which was a genuine return of the people to spiritual values embodied and symbolized by the king under the tremendous pressure of annihilation that had happened during this phase. This reformation of Josiah was Josiah's own messianic fantasy that he was imposing from the top. I'm not saying that derogatorily about Josiah. He was a great king, but he was living in some sort of slightly, what would appear slightly la-la state. He, this was it. So the people actually saw this not as a genuine return to the values of the Torah or the traditional values that had been handed down, but as yet another state-imposed religion. Whereas before we had the religion of Ashur that was being imposed on us, now we have the religion of the God of Israel. And it was not seen, and it's still not seen, as necessarily a groundswell movement, but was nevertheless a total re, you know, reformation. Round about the year minus 622, so Josiah's already been on the throne for 12, 13 years, <coughs> or longer, actually, maybe 18 years, but there's some debate about the... <coughs> By the way, I know I haven't touched Jeremiah yet, <laughs> but I just want to take this as a footnote because some of you actually want to hear not just what's in the Bible, but you want to hear cutting-edge scholarship. So I'm sure you are aware, and this is not absolutely relevant to what I'm speaking about today, but I'll just take a minute because I need to say it at some point when we talk about these dates. You are aware of, are you aware of one of the great fault lines in Jewish scholarship relating to chronology? Who is aware of some of the issues? There's, a ve there's, a, there's quite a few different issues in relation to chronology, but this one is a biggie. And it's a fault line that really runs down the divide between the secular academic world and the more traditional religious world about chronology here. And I say this because in the past, people have come to talks that I've given on history or Tanakh, and then they go home and they find books and they open them and they go, but wait a minute, that's a totally different time frame going on. And I will only touch on this for 10 seconds and those of you who are interested can look into it. It's still undergoing some form of, I think the answer is clear, but the debate is still going on. And that is that the, and I, and, and, I, and, I, and I ask for forgiveness for even using this term, but I'm only using this term for convenience because it's a ridiculous term. But in broader, in broad, the religious world, I can feel ridiculous saying that term, the more tradition, the greater traditionalists take every, all of the chronology of this and they push it forward 160 years. There is a 160 year discrepancy between secular academia and the Frum view. That emerges basically because of a brighter that we have in, in, in the Talmud. Everything matches up from Alexander the Great. By Alexander the Great, everybody's in agreement. Alexander the Great happened around about minus 320, minus 330, the big Hellenic encounter.
But all of this, uh, and what that does, what they basically do is they totally truncate the Persian era. So, in fact, where we are now, and all sources, and, and I had <laughs> a few years ago, I went into this and I thought, you know, I find it difficult to exist in a world where these two opinions are, are just not talking to each other. And I don't like how to, so I actually looked into it and I actually uh, spoke with the curator of uh, Assyriology at the British Museum because I said to him, how do you know that you're right? And I'm fairly convinced after all the material that he showed me and exposed me to that, in fact, the academic view is probably more correct. It's very interesting because normally academic scholars are coming along and saying to the Jewish people, oh, what you thought was old is actually much more recent, whereas this is exactly the opposite. This is where it's happening. But I just wanted to highlight that. It's an interesting point. In around 622, 623, Josiah decides to refocus his energy on the temple itself in Jerusalem. Now, uh, obviously, that was something that Hezekiah had also done. Hezekiah had re-emphasized the, the centrality of the temple for Judaism. It doesn't mean that people couldn't pray elsewhere, but your sacrifices and your, your rituals really needed to be performed in the temple. Obviously, after the Assyrian devastation, there weren't many other places to go either. But Josiah wanted to refocus his energies on that, and started a whole reconstruction and renovation project of the temple, in the course of which they encountered the discovery. And those of you who are familiar with the discovery during the Josianic Reformation, the discovery is, is that inside the cracks of the temple wall, they found a scroll of the law. They found a Sefer Torah according to some, the Sefer Torah, but they found a scroll of the Torah. According to other scholars, this is the point at which we see entering stage right the book of Deuteronomy. There's some discussion as to whether, in fact, it was the entire Pentateuch or whether it was just the book of Deuteronomy. What we do know is that Josiah effectively made the book of Deuteronomy the central constitution of his political regime. When the scroll was brought before Josiah, we are told, this is not history, Kabbalah history, it's not in the Bible, but it's in Midrash and also reflected in biblical sources. When they brought the scroll before Josiah, he opened it up and what was the first verse that his eyes landed on? So you can imagine if you're Josiah and you're discovering the first Sefer Torah in a hundred years and you are, you're living the messianic reality and you open this up and your eyes land on a verse. That verse is going to have tremendous meaning for you. And what was the verse? The verse was, <laughs> God will lead your king into exile to a land where you, neither you nor your fathers have ever heard of, and there you will worship gods of stone and wood. Josiah sends immediately to the spiritual leader of the age. Who is the spiritual leader of the age at that time? Now, it just so happens that when we open up the first chapter of Jeremiah, it will tell you that Jeremiah's prophetic career begins in the 13th year of King Josiah. But it's not yet Jeremiah, who is the spiritual leader of the age, the spiritual leader of the age is the prophetess Huldah. There are many, many stages in Jewish history where it is a woman, not a man, who has been either the greatest warrior or the greatest sage or the greatest spiritual leader. Huldah tells him that, he goes, is this really the Torah and is this really what's going to happen? She said, yes, it's the Torah. Yes, it's going to happen. It's not going to happen to you, Josiah, because you have shown yourself to be a righteous king and you have humbled yourself before God. But it's going to happen. There has been such a build-up of iniquity that I cannot simply overlook this, says God. That is going to happen. But what we also know is that that is all that's going to happen. The king gets exiled. It could stop after that. Josiah says, okay, so we'll continue. Meanwhile, the Syrian, Assyrian Empire continues to deconstruct 
And <laughs> once again, in processes that I desperately wish we had time to go into, so it's so remarkably fascinating. Obviously, the big turning point is uh, 612. In 612, in the, all the prophecies of Nahum come about. The Babylonians go to Nineveh and they schmice it completely. The remnants of the Assyrian Empire and the Assyrian army and uh, move to Haran. The Babylonians come and they schmice Haran. And then eventually, <laughs> they, the remainder of the Assyrians form an alliance with Egypt. In famously in 609, I told you it's complex, and I'm only giving you the such broad headlines. 609, the Egyptians in the 25th dynasty of the Middle Kingdom under Nahor II, they come up through the land of Israel to join their mates, the Assyrians, in one last attempt because no one likes the idea of the Babylonians coming. No one likes that. So there's an alliance between all of these, but particularly led by the powerful Egyptian kingdom in the south, to join the remnants of the Assyrian army and to re this, this fantasy of recapturing Haran and recapturing Nineveh and restoring the glory of the Assyrians. When Nahor comes through with his army, Josiah, who, as I said, is living this messianic fantasy, what does the Torah say about the messianic period? There will be no sword passing through your land. Josiah says, your army is not going to pass through the land of Israel. Nahor says to Josiah, my beef is not with you. I don't really care about you. I'm just going to join the Assyrians so we can fight the Babylonians together. Josiah says, whatever you want to do, you're not coming through here. And they meet them at Megiddo in that famous battle. It wasn't really a battle because it only lasted a few minutes. Nehor told all of his archers to concentrate all of their firepower on the king. And 300 arrows pierced Josiah's body within a matter of seconds. Josiah was brought back to Jerusalem. Tremendously devastating effect on the Jewish people. His son, Yehoahaz, comes to the throne, but Nehor comes back to Jerusalem and takes Yehoahaz after only three months into exile. Meanwhile, in 605, in six, and when he goes into exile, sorry, when Yehoahaz goes into exile, <laughs> So Jehoiachaz really is the first Judean king to be exiled. He dies in exile. But then we get, then they put on the throne his brother and the second son of Josiah who becomes a very, very well-known king called Jehoiakim. Don't worry, we'll do Jeremiah. <laughs> but if you do not understand this, you won't understand what's going on in Jeremiah. This is Jehoiakim. But what happens in 605... In 605, once again, the Egyptians go up to join, by now, I mean, Jehoiakim is really stuck. He's, he, he dreams of being an independent king, but he's so stuck between these geopolitical entities, particularly Egypt's pressure. And it's Egypt, he's basically a vassal to Egypt, but the Egyptians are going up to once again join the reconstituted Assyrian army, at the very, those of you who are familiar with ancient world history, and particularly ancient world history, will know the great big dividing line that goes through the Battle of Karchemish, one of the most famous battles of the ancient world. And famous, really, because it was so, well, <laughs> one-sided. <coughs> the Egyptians go to join the Assyrians because they say, now is our chance. The emperor of Babylon... The great ruler, Nabopolassar, is ill. He's basically gone back to Babylon to die. Now there's a real vacuum. Now we can reconstitute this alliance. And they go, and they join forces. They go up to join forces with the Assyrians at Karchemish. Karchemish is in the north here, around about the border of, say, Syria and Turkey today. But because Nabopolassar is ill, he sends his son, the fresh-crowned prince, Nabukaduriusur, who we know as Nebuchadnezzar. And Nebuchadnezzar comes with an enormous Babylonian army and just annihilates all Assyrian resistance, the entire Assyrian army and all its officers and structures. It's gone. 605, the Battle of Karchemish is the end of the Assyrians. 
The Egyptians who had joined them saw this. They arrived in time to watch it and then ran. The Babylonians overtook them and wiped them out. Egypt doesn't really raise its head in history for another few hundred years. The Battle of Carchemish is a definitive line. Now it's Babylon, and Babylon is everywhere. Obviously, Jehoiakim now needs to decide whether or not what he's going to do, but he ultimately has no choice. Although he's constantly fantasizing, it's almost like every six months he has an independence rebel conference with some neighboring states like Edom and Ammon. But ultimately, Nebuchadnezzar, we don't, many people don't realize, Nebuchadnezzar actually came three times, three times against Jerusalem. The first time was in 603, during which time he made an exile of some of the cream of the society. He walked into the temple, he took a few things from there, he did a little bit of a ransack, as you do, and he exiled a number of the elite. Not the full administrative class yet, not the king or anything, but a number of the elite, especially young, bright things. That's the famous exile that you read about at the beginning of the book of Daniel. That happens in minus 603. But it is minus 597 where Nebuchadnezzar returns again in 597 and does a proper exile of, well, he returns because he knows that Jehoiakim is trying to rebel. Jehoiakim, who's been on the throne now for 10 years, and we basically realized that that was why Nebuchadnezzar's army was outside the gates of Jerusalem, and so we delivered Jehoiakim to him, dead. We literally, you know, you go to the city of David today, archaeologists have discovered and they've uncovered the palace of Jehoiakim. And you can see the wall, and you can see exactly where the Babylonian army would have stood, basically that whole area that's now still one. And so you can see the wall they put it. We don't know whether he was alive or dead when they put him over the wall, but we certainly know he was dead by the time he got to the bottom. That was an ancient custom in the, in, 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 a custom in the ancient world that the populace would take the leader and go, it's his fault, not ours. Don't kill us, just take him. Nebuchadnezzar comes in, and he puts on the throne... Jehoiakim's son, Jehoiachin. And Jehoiachin's only on the throne for three months, and he then is exiled in a very, very big exile, a devastating exile. The temple is not destroyed, but in minus 597, Jehoiachin is exiled to Babylon with all of the elite and the administrative and the educated classes. That is when you see the exile of the prophet Ezekiel, that is where, for example, when you open up the Megillat Esther, as we will in a few weeks, and you see that Mordechai came with the exile of Yechoniah, and that is a very, very famous exile. Then, then Nebuchadnezzar puts on the throne of Judah, Sidkiyahu. And Sidkiyahu, who is actually an uncle of Jehoiachin, because he's the last surviving brother of Josiah, of Yoshiahu, and he rules for 10 years, and he has a very complex relationship with reality and with the geopolitical events going on around him, and eventually he makes the extremely unwise decision, yet again, to rebel against Babylon, and Nebuchadnezzar comes this time, and that's in minus 586, and destroys the temple, uh, and famously, as you know, Tzidkiyahu, the king of Judah, uh, was uh, taken by the Babylonians, and all of his sons were, uh, were executed in front of him. Uh, they slayed all of his sons in front of him, and then as soon as they had done that, they blinded him, so it would be the last thing that he would see, and they dragged him in chains to Babylon. That is the destruction of the temple with all of its details. Jeremiah the prophet is beginning his career in Josiah and in its 52 chapters, 52 complexly structured chapters, is responding to actual events that are happening in the reigns of Jehoiakim, Jehoiachin, and Tzidkiyahu. That is the first thing you need to realize when you open Jeremiah. Whereabouts in this historically unfolding picture is Jeremiah responding? 
Jeremiah is a prophet who is aware, who is aware that the temple is going to be destroyed and that Jerusalem is going to be destroyed and that the people are going to go into exile. It's not a question of if, it's a question of when. This is going to happen. And Jeremiah's message is a very powerfully difficult message. It's a message that's difficult for Jeremiah to articulate. Jeremiah, unlike Isaiah, who we looked at last week, who in that famous chapter 6 of Isaiah, when Isaiah says, ah, pick me as the prophet, Jeremiah, from the very outset, doesn't want to be a prophet. I don't want this. The first six chapters or so of Jeremiah belong in that early phase of Yoshiahu's reform. Jeremiah is speaking to the people because he knows that their reform under Josiah is not genuine. And all of the great themes of the prophets emerge in those first few chapters. The idea that God does not want theurgic sacrifice, that God wants ethical living as part of this covenantal relationship. Shuvu banim shovavim, return you naughty children. God tells, God tells Jeremiah that even before he was born, I know you don't want to be a prophet, Jeremiah, but even before you were born, I chose you to be this prophet, to be this man of conflict and argument. It's not that Jeremiah is a litigious person. He's not someone who is wanting to strike up argument and debate, but eh, nobody wants to listen to him. He do, except he does have one very, very faithful person who is Baruch ben Neria, who is his scribe, who comes in and out of the picture. Now, I, in the remaining minutes, having contextualized exactly where Jeremiah is sitting, I, wa I, I want to, and I knew that we would have very, very great constraints on our time, but I just want to highlight certain chapters of Jeremiah that are, in a sense, must-read chapters to get the picture. If you're going to read just one chapter of Jeremiah, one chapter, don't just read one chapter, please. <laughs> but if you are going to read one chapter, it's going to be, well, there are obviously several candidates because every chapter of Jeremiah is just this unbelievable power punch. But if you're going to read one chapter, you're going to read chapter 7. In chapter 7, under King Jehoiakim. Now, Jehoiakim, Jehoiakim was super, super wicked, super vile. Re and, and, and as I was going to say earlier, it's reinstituting under Jehoiakim the idea, not that we're going to ban the cult of God or we're going to ban the temple. It's just going to be another place. The priests in the temple are going to be going about their business like other priests of other religions also on the temple mount. That's where we're going to have all the temple worship. And, you know, they're just one of a group of sects and cults and religions happening over there. It's almost a worse situation because it brings the unique spiritual heritage of the Jewish people to an extremely mundane level. Jeremiah goes down to the temple <laughs> and yet, and yet throughout this period, and yet throughout this period, there are several camps emerging. Those who are saying that our future lies with the Babylonians, those who were saying that indeed uh, <coughs> nothing's gonna, everything's going to be fine. Why is everything going to be fine? Because we have the temple. That temple is an eternal building where the Jewish people we're in the land of Israel, we have the temple, we have God, it's all going to be fine. When you read Jeremiah, remember you are reading a, the most left-wing document in Jewish history. Jeremiah comes down and says, everybody is running around going, Hechal Hashem, Hechal Hashem. Hechal Hashem. Hechal is the chamber, the chamber of God. So we've got the chamber of God, we've got the house of God. Nothing can happen to us. <laughs> and you think that that makes you inviolable. You should know that your presence on this land 
and your continued existence has nothing to do with territorial integrity. If you do not think, says God, that I will destroy this place, go and find Shiloh now. Shiloh, the famous location of the tabernacle, even prior to the rise of kings. Go and find Shiloh. Where is it? The sanctuary sat there for hundreds of years. Where is it now? It's rubble. It doesn't exist. I will do exactly the same to Jerusalem. And I will do it, says God, unless you change your ways. If you do Teshuvah now, you, may, you, won't, you won't escape the Babylonian destruction. That's coming. But what you may be able to do is save yourselves so that you can rebuild. These various camps, some people, you know, and I'm often fond of saying this, and sometimes it's worth saying this, you know, we sometimes say, oh, look, you know, if, if I lived at the time of the prophets, if I lived then, what would I do, right? So everybody likes to say, oh, well, I'm a sensible person. I, I, of course I would listen to Jeremiah. I mean, he's got the right message and whatever. And we sometimes fail to remember that, at, and because the Bible tells us and historical sources tell us that at this time there are hundreds of prophets in Jerusalem most of whom are saying, and this is particularly during the reign of Tzidkiyahu, so you really need to look at the chapters in the late 20s, say from 27 to 29, if you want to focus really on the essential message that Jeremiah is, is going on about under the reign of Tzidkiyahu, where he physically walks around with a yoke around his neck to symbolize how we need to subjugate ourselves to the Babylonians, because our business is not playing these geopolitical games. There is utterly no point to us being an autonomous, sovereign, independent country if we do not know what we're meant to be doing here. And many prophets were saying that Yechoniah, the Davidic king that was exiled into Babylon, will return. And we've heard that many times. The Messiah will return. He's going to come back in a couple of years. He's going to bring back all the vessels with him. Everything's going to be fine. This prophet called Hananiah ben Azur rises up and he says, I spoke to God and God told me that Yechonia is coming back in a couple of years. Everything's going to be all right. This nonsense of subjugating ourselves to Babylon. Jeremiah says, you know what Jeremiah says to that? It's amazing. Jeremiah says, Amen. Amen. Would that that would be the case? I'd love that. But you didn't speak to God, and you are a liar. And how do I know you didn't speak to God? Because look at me. I'm a wreck. God speaks through me like fire. You think I want to be telling you this message? It's not happening. Not only is Babylonia going to come, not only are they going to destroy the temple, but you're going to be dead within a year. And of course, Hanani ben Azur was dead within a year. Chapter 31, which is one of, I mean, it's not like Jeremiah is without, is without his unbelievably sublime moments. Probably the most sublime chapter of Jeremiah. The one that when you read it, you're just going to be astonished at just how powerful uh, poetry can be and ideas can be ideas that express the word of god if you look at chapter 31 <laughs> the unbelievable pathos with which jeremiah exhibits hope and expresses hope for the land and for the return of the jewish people because he famously prophesies in diff two different places not in 31 that the exile will last for 70 years. He is the great prophet of the destruction. But amazingly, in the following chapter, on chapter 32, in the 10th year of Tzidkiyahu, on the very eve of the destruction, Jeremiah goes to his birthplace of Anatot, which is just north of Jerusalem, and he buys a field and he buys a field, that would be like, God forbid, all the chas shalom's in place, okay? But that would be like, if imagine that you knew that the land of Israel was about to be 
absolutely destroyed in some great nuclear holocaust, God forbid, and you went on the eve of that destruction knowing it was going to happen and you bought you know, an apartment in Tel Aviv because you said, no, we're coming back here. The destruction's going to happen, but the Jewish people will be restored in this land. Or the Yishama, they will still be heard. The great message of Jeremiah in the early days is summed up with this fa the famous thing that I said from chapter 7. You know, improve your ways and your deeds, and I will cause you to dwell in this land. But by the end of Jeremiah's career, it's really a case of <laughs> the destruction. God is at the head of the Babylonian army. It's happening. You just have to make the best that you can for yourselves in exile and wait for the promised return. That will happen in 70 years. And eventually, obviously, from chapter 40 onwards, from chapter 40 onwards, is already, I mean, chapter 39 describes the destruction. Remember that the Book of Lamentations is attributed to Jeremiah, but the descriptions of the destruction that we find in chapters 39 and in chapters 52, that happens. And then the Babylonians, because Jeremiah is the one prophet who's been screaming about how the Israel should, Judah should subjugate itself to Babylon, they let him go. They let him go. They say, you can wander around and be yourself. Do what you want. So he hangs out, of course, with the temporary governor that was put in place called Gedaliah. And as we see, time and time... Was anyone, was anyone there on Friday night, by the way, when I gave a talk on, in, at, the, uh, at the Reconstruction in, but at the University Synagogue, right? Yeah. And Rabbi Rochler said to me, why is it that we are constantly just so stupid? Yeah. And you cannot imagine a more stupid event than what happened after the destruction of the temple. I'm sure most of you are familiar with what I'm talking about. The assassination of Gedaliah. Gedaliah was a really nice guy, and the Babylonians just put him in charge and said, look, you know, we've destroyed the place, but you know, you can set up a shtickle kibbutz over there and you can just do what you want. Yeremiah was hanging out with him, but of course, zealots come along and they assassinate Gedaliah. All of those tragic events are recorded in the last few chapters of Jeremiah, and Jeremiah is telling people, look, if you're going to go into exile, go east, go to Babylon, go where you go. Just whatever you do, whatever you do, don't go to Egypt. Don't go to Egypt. And of course, where do they take Jeremiah by force? To Egypt. So Jeremiah himself ends up in Egypt. Jeremiah's, and I'm winding up now in the next minute because it's nearly quarter past, and I'm always under very strict instructions to have to finish by quarter past in this room. Jeremiah's career, to which I have not even begun to do justice today, is a tragic portrayal of a, you know, Jeremiah is arrested and beaten up several times throughout his career. We read about that in the book of Jeremiah. He's nearly killed. He's nearly killed by the, by the masses. He's nearly killed by the kings. His messages, when Jehoiakim gets a copy, a scroll containing you know, Jeremiah's famous temple speech, Jeremiah stands there and as it's being read to him, he's ripping it up and throwing it in the fire. The kings of Israel were ab the kings of Judah were absolutely deaf to this message of authenticity that Jeremiah was bringing. We do not exist just like any other people. We exist in this land for a purpose. We are a continuum in history. If Jeremiah could see 2600 years into the future, he would not be surprised. He would know that the Jewish people have a purpose in history, that they are going to exist, that they have this dynamic cycle of exile and redemption, of exile and redemption, of exile and redemption. But every time the Jewish people find themselves in the land of Israel, they must ask themselves what their purpose for being is. That is the huge question. I know that we have not discussed Jeremiah in the depth that we can, but I'm hoping that these historical picture because it sets itself next week for Ezekiel. These talks, I have never ever spoken on Jeremiah before in less than an hour and a half. So just to give you an idea of just how important this prophet is, 
Read him. He will deeply affect you when you realize the history that he's dealing with and how relevant that history is for today. More than, more than any other figure, I'm going to think this afternoon about what I didn't say and have real, real angst about that. Do we have independent evidence about the existence of these prophets? Is there like, are there, I mean, is there a mention of Jeremiah and... There's no mention, there's no... There's outside no, of Jewish yeah, texts. There's no mention that I'm aware of specifically of Jeremiah, contemporary. I mean, obviously, once you get down here... Right, and, right. Yeah, but contemporary evidence of Jeremiah. But what scholars are very impressed, you know, Scholars are not, you know, I'm, talk, I'm not talking about religious scholars, I'm talking about, you know, right. your Bacon Press and Asaph Pekurus. They're very, very sceptical right. about a number of different figures in the Bible. But about Jeremiah, his book and his text so deeply reflects the political realities that we do know about that it's almost impossible to imagine that it wasn't uh, in some way, obviously edited, whatever, but an authentic reflection of a prophetic movement. And it definitely appears to be composed by the one hand. He's a contemporary of another prophet, the prophet Zephania. Uh, he's a contemporary of the prophetess Hulda. Uh, but really he just burst onto the scene, uh, really in the middle of the reign of Josiah, and under some, what he's constantly expressing is that, he, I mean, he even runs away at one point. He doesn't, he has a, he's showing that there is, the concept of prophecy itself is not an easy thing. It's very, very conflicted about this. So we get a picture of his personality. His background we only know a little bit about because of the family relations. It's actually his uncle that told him to go and redeem the field in Anatot. So we know that he has a he comes from a, a, a landed family, but we don't know too much about him uh, prior to the advent of his prophetic career. Yeah. You mentioned earlier that you said there were Jeremiah, the one that we know about, where are the other 99? Well, I didn't say specifically 100, I said there are a lot. Uh, well, we know about Hananiah ben Azur, because Jeremiah tells us, and Hananiah ben Azur claims that he was representing a great groundswell of prophets. Um, where are the others? Well, if they're wrong, they don't really make it into, uh, history. into history and into, into the history. They were Nevi'eh Shekhar, they were false prophets, even though Jeremiah mentions a few of them. They're actually a number of them, not just Hanani bin Ezra, a number of them mentioned in the book of Jeremiah uh, as having given false messages of hope, false messages. Uh, 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 Jeremiah is the prophet of authenticity. Let's really, really look at what's going on. Let's really determine what we are, who we are, and what is going on in the world and how we should be reacting to it. Uh, there is, uh, yeah, yeah there, there are, there, as I said, there are two other prophets. One is the prophet Zephaniah, uh, who is really trying to, uh, once again, uh, only three chapters, but trying to give the exile some sort of spiritual purpose because he knows it's coming. And the other one, big prophet, I mean, deep, 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 deep prophet, we also only have three chapters, is the prophet Habakkuk. And Habakkuk is a much more theological discussion of how can all of this be happening and the destruction is going to be so total that the righteous are going to get destroyed with the wicked and why is that happening and all the rest of it. So Habakkuk also a contemporary. But Jeremiah is so overwhelmingly involved. I mean, he's arrested twice, he's beaten up, he's nearly killed, he comes back, he goes here, he goes. Well, you can actually see he's discussing with kings, he's this, that. It's very, very embedded and I keep talking about this and that's why I wanted to spend the time on the historical background so that when you read Jeremiah and you read chapter 7 and you read chapter 31 and you read chapter 26 and you read chapters 32 and you read especially the chapters from 40 to 52 after the Khurban, you see the pain that he's experienced. He's sad. He's sad and he's deeply afflicted by the message that he has been given. Like Eov, and I spoke about Eov a couple of times recently, he also curses his birthday. He wants to kill the guy that ran from the maternity ward to his father to tell him he'd been bored. He really, he's, he's a very, very troubled individual. When was he born and when did he die? Uh, so we assume that he uh, was probably in his early to mid-twenties when he got the prophetic call. So he was probably born round about uh, 
maybe born round about the time uh, that King Josiah came to the throne, so probably maybe around 640, and we know that uh, he lived well into the exile, and probably died in Egypt uh, in, say, the five, sometime in the 570s or 580s. Last question. Happy Porter, final comment. Uh, Jeremiah also said not only that there would be an exile and people would be exiled, but he also said adjust to it, comply. Uh, yes, 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 absolutely, absolutely. He's really, very, thank you, thank you. He's really the one prophet who sets up for this, this idea that when you are in exile, you pray for the welfare of the government in which you reside. He wanted people to settle. We have a, yeah, exactly. He wanted people to uh, adjust themselves to the new society, have productive lives, so that they would be ultimately able to return. The book of Jeremiah ends, of course, in the place that the book of Kings ends with the restoration of Jehoiachin in exile, being brought out of prison and being brought to the table of Evel Merodach. So it's. Uh, and also that the entire scroll of the about the destruction of Babylon, because he prophesizes about that at the end as well, is actually a scroll that is then sunk in the Euphrates, so that it would be the spark that would lead to the destruction of Babylon. Okay, I think we have um, to wrap it up, but uh, yeah. I do want to thank you. Uh, terrific. Yeah. The, those of you, those of you who think I was just a bit of a jet ski today with Jeremiah are correct. But I don't want you to think that, I want you to come back for Ezekiel, because Ezekiel is really the big chaboom.